the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From Talk 910 KNEW San Francisco, this is Rob Black. Rob talks about your money every weekday, live and local, from 10 to noon. Enjoy the show. Live from the Bay Area, your money, your life. This is Rob Black. Your money or your life. 800-345-5639. It sounds like I'm robbing you. 800-345-5639 to get your calls on the air. It's a financial show. Coming up in this hour, I'm going to be interviewing Kit Yarrow, talking about Generation Y and how they spend and, and maybe some ideas for you and me to you know, cherry pick I, uh, you know, who the successful retailers are out there as far as you know, where kids are putting their money. Um, let's talk about the stock market ever so briefly. Stocks are falling today. But they're kind of teeter-tottering. They're kind of zigging zagging in to positive territory, out of positive territory. For instance, the Nasdaq's up a tenth of a point, just a little bit, whereas the Dow's down 11 points. Now, again, the Dow, to be quite honest with you, I don't understand why I talk about it on a daily basis. It's 30 freaking stocks, of which I might own two. And yet, we look at it as an index that we say, hey, the market's doing great. That's not the market. That's 30 stocks. It's ridiculous that we, we focus on that. We focus on the NASDAQ, and that's tech-weighted. It's, 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 first, it's a lot of tech stocks, but then it's also a market-weighted index. So how two or three companies do, if Apple has a good day, the NASDAQ could have a good day, and that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. To get your calls in the air, it's 800-345-5639. It's 800-345-5639. Anything financial that you want to bring to the table, bring to the table. We can talk about it. For instance, Vanguard is one of the big brokerage houses that I like. I like Vanguard. I like Fidelity. I like T. Rowe Price. Their size has given them volume, volume, volume. And their business model has always been about low cost, helping you, the consumer. Now, you can find a mutual fund that invests in the backwoods of China. And they're going to charge you a fee for that. They're going to charge you a pretty, a pretty premium for that. Vanguard, on the other hand, has said, you know, let's just let's screw all this and let's let's all be normal. Let's all be homogenized. They've they've brought plainness and vanillaness to investing. And I like that. Typically, a good investor doesn't know a good stock from a bad stock. Typically, a good investor invests every two weeks. Typically, a good investor does it for his whole life. It's not about picking the right stock. It's about having the amount of time on your side. And Vanguard helps keep costs low. They're the largest manager of stock and bond funds. Now, they're gaining a little bit of market share in exchange-traded funds. Now, Charles Schwab today comes out and says, we're going to introduce eight exchange-traded funds. Because Schwab knows that about 11% of their trades come into what are called ETFs, exchange-traded funds. An exchange-traded fund is a little bit like a stock and a little bit like a mutual fund. And it's been the fastest-growing product on Wall Street for years and years and years now. Now, Vanguard, they're getting a little bit deeper into it. They're the third largest sponsor of ETFs. They captured more than 30% of the money flowing into the business this year by charging an average fee of $0.15 cents for every $100 in assets. 
That means 15 basis points. 100 basis points is 1%. If the price is low enough, investors vote with their wallet. They're charging almost nothing. That's pretty damn good. That means you can buy into a stock for 15 cents for every $100 that you're throwing at it. That's pretty sweet. Now, Vanguard started selling ETFs in 2001, later than its larger rivals. The firm is competing for customers who want to capture the returns of markets or industries rather than individual stocks. Now, ETFs caught on more than a decade ago with institutional investors such as hedge funds, and they're gaining popularity with brokers and popularity with advisors now who manage money for individuals. Interest amongst these groups is phenomenal. Now, Vanguard's got $77 billion in exchange-traded funds after inflows of $17 billion this year iShares, which is basically owned by Barclays, they're the market leader in what are called exchange-traded funds. It attracted $25 billion in 2009. Now, State Street second in ETFs with $163 billion. Now, then again, third place goes to Vanguard with $77 billion. Now, ETFs typically mimic indexes while trading throughout the day like stocks. U.S. ETF assets increased 30% this year. So America can't get enough of them. And again, Vanguard gives me no money. Vanguard gives me no no love. They give me nothing. They don't pet me when I'm good. They don't spit on me when I'm bad. But I'm going to be honest with you. I like ETFs, and I like what Vanguard's doing. Costs are paramount. Now, Bogle, at one point in time, criticized ETFs, saying they were encouraged short-term trading. But he's also gone on the other side, saying that you know they're great for value, and they're great for individual investors who want to accumulate assets over their lifetime. There's a Vanguard Emerging Market ETF. They charge $0.27 cents per $100 compared with $0.72 cents for the iShares Morgan Stanley Emerging Markets Index. And that's a great way to get international exposure. Anyway, I'm totally, totally in love with uh, the ETF angle of investing. 800-345-5639 to get your calls on the air. Let's go to Troy in Petaluma. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Uh, I was just telling Heidi I sent you an email regarding uh, Frontier Communications. Okay. And I listened to conference call this morning, and uh, gosh, they're very positive on it. Even the analysts that were asking questions uh, weren't having a problem with it. The problem is the stock has like a 13% dividend. Right. That's really dangerous. I've owned the stock for three to five years. I wonder how how badly is it going to blow up on me? <laughs> Well, keep in mind, 13% dividend sounds pretty good, right? Oh, I love it when they send me the check, but I don't expect them to keep sending it. But also, in the last two or three years, it's gone from $14 a share down to $7 a share. Correct. So you get that 13% dividend, but it's really not worth it, all things considered. It wasn't back when I bought the stock. It was only a 6%. Right. So it's become kind of a junk stock, kind of like a junk bond in the sense that it has a super high yield, but there's a super amount of risk tied towards it. The big problem with the company is uh, debt. They've got about $5 billion in debt, um, and that's not good for a company that's worth $2.2 billion. So if I were to buy the company today, I'd buy it for $2.2 billion, but I'd be picking up $5 billion debt, and I ain't, I ain't signing that deal. Price to sales on Frontier is cheap. Ticker symbol is FTR for those who are playing along at home. Let's talk a little bit about what they do. Um, give me just a second. One of the reasons, and I'm going to have to take a look at the, the financials, but uh, thanks for the call. They serve city dwellers and country folk. Frontier Communications, they do local, long distance, and digital phone service. They do internet access to about 3 million residential subscribers in 24 states. So they're relatively small. They're what's considered an ILEC. 
Now, there's also a CLEC, a CLEC, a competitive local exchange carrier. You remember the days when we had Bell South and AT&T and Verizon, and uh, we had competitive local exchange carriers. When, when suddenly, back in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, we started having alternatives. You remember this, but very few people remember that uh, phone companies used to be a complete monopoly. They used to dominate their local markets, and then we started creating what were called competitive local exchange carriers uh, to challenge the bells. Now, this is considered an independent or incumbent local exchange carrier. They're operating under the Frontier Residential brand. They offer satellite television through a partnership with Dish Networks. They do data internet. They do telephone services. Let's take a look at the financials because ultimately you're asking the question of when does it go south on me? Let's take a look. $2 billion in revenue, $2.2 billion, $2.23 billion. So they're slowly growing the revenue. Income has dropped from $344 million to $214 million to $182 million. They're still profitable. They've diluted their earnings per share. So they're raising an enormous amount of shares in the last three years. Again, as their profit has gone down, their, their earnings per share has gone down. Let's see what I can draw it at you. Okay. Currently, it is a $7 stock, $7.20. They recently reported this morning earnings that beat by two cents a share. Company revealed it previously reported expectations. They said our revised expectations are that capital expenditures, excluding acquisition-related capital expenditures, will be within range. So there's nothing shocking going on there. Monthly customer revenue per access line increased approximately 2%. Nothing shocking there. High-speed internet customers during the quarter, they added 7,500. Barron's talked about this company recently, and this is probably where we should go with this conversation because Frontier offered you know up $600 million of, of preferred senior notes on top of $450 million. So it's not widely followed, and the company continually goes to the market for more money. And they're not really, how shall we say, Breaking down the gates, you know, they're not doing anything phenomenal as far as business model goes. Uh, Barron's did talk about them recently in September, and it talked about how investors have developed an aversion to old-fashioned telecom stocks, uh, given frequent headlines about the demise of traditional phone lines. Frontier and Quest and CTL, they're in the business of Century Telephone. They're in the business of, you know, putting a phone in your house. Now, if you peel away the conventional wisdom, investors are apt to find high-yielding stocks that continue to generate significant cash flow for the top five dividend payers in the S&P 500 or rural telecom carriers. Those four high-paid dividend rural players, Frontier, Windstream, Quest, Century Telephone. Now, they're providers of landline phone service, again, that pay dividends of over 8%. Those rates are particularly impressive compared to the S&P 500's average yield of 2.4%. Now, Century Telephone stands out as the only one with an investment-grade credit rating. It's also poised to benefit from the synergies of a recent merger with Embark, a large landline provider. Now, the merged company has branded itself Century. So, in, ultimately, what it looks like is if you want to own this company or if you want the high dividend, maybe you switch out of Frontier and go to CenturyTel because they've got a better investment grade on their debt. And investment grade, we know California's near junk. And that means we have to pay 4% to borrow money that the state of Virginia only pays 1% on. It's just it's phenomenal, the difference. And when I say we, it's not the state. It's the taxpayer uh, that lives in that state. So I don't have a feeling for Frontier. I know that they're burning cash. I know that they raise cash and burn cash. 
I don't know that I would own the company for growth because let's face it, you know, rural telephone companies, their best play might be on acquisitions by the bigger boys of the Verizon, the AT&Ts, than, you know, people moving into that area saying, I need telephone service. Let's see. I don't like the sector. I can stand by that. I would prefer you switch into something like an AT&T or Verizon for dividend that's half that, but you get a little bit more growth and a lot more safety and a lot better debt structure. So I'm going to stand with that. For those who want to play at home, ticker symbol on Frontiers, FTR, FTR. It's the Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Don't be shy with the calls. We can talk... Cisco getting into the set-top box business. We can talk News Corp and Fox and how well they're doing with the Yankees and with Brett Favre and football. Anything that you want to talk about financially, we can talk about. Pete's Coffee. That stock's up 50% this year. It's up big today. It's at an all-time high. It's a company that enjoys the daily grind. I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip the waitresses. It's Rob Black Show, 9, 10 a.m. More stimulating talk. Big study in the Wall Street Journal today on pacifiers. Preschoolers with speech disorders were three times as likely as other children to have used a pacifier for at least three years. Out of uh, the kids surveyed, 61 scored below normal on a standardized speech test. So what's that tell you? Take the pacifier away from the, the brat. Let him cry. Let him scream. Put the thumb in his mouth if he has to. Infant sucking behaviors were based on parental recollections rather than direct observation. Larger randomized trials needed to validate the study. So interesting, right? And nicotine patches appear to promote cancer and the regrowth of cancer. So get this. You're, you're, you're trying to beat the smoking habit, and it turns out that a nicotine patch could actually promote cancer. So I don't know. Is there any right answers in the world anymore? Mouse and human cancers can differ significantly. So this is a study on, on cancers in mice. Uh, there, there was a big study on thalidomide back in the 1970s in rabbits, and it was great at inducing their labor and making it you know totally easy for the woman. We started giving it to women in the United States, and they started having birth defects. Skin goes, whoops. Rabbits have different births than, than humans do. And fertility, for those of you who are trying to get knocked up, women who lie down for 15 minutes after receiving artificial insemination appear to have 50% higher chances of becoming pregnant. So something about, you know, laying down. I don't know. Let's go to Julian Berkeley. Julie? Hey, Rob. Thanks for your, your help and your advice. Um, my question is, if a stock or an index has declined, say, 10% off its recent highs, would that mean it's less likely to correct further if the broad market corrects? Sounds like an assumption to me. Um, I'm just noticing some things are down, and would that be buying on weakness regardless of what the overall market may or may not do? Yeah. Is there any particular stock you're looking at? Um, I've just noticed a few Gilead Sciences, Freeport McMoran, Aeropostale, they're all they all have been recently down over 10% from their recent highs. Right. And the stock market's down about 4 to 6% from its recent highs. Right. So if they've been down so much, you know, more than the overall market, in general, are they less likely to correct more? 
I don't think so. Okay. I've never seen a study on that, but what you are bringing up, Julie, is a great concept on how to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, you can eliminate some of your risk by buying it when it's on sale or when it's it's already pulled back. Um, for instance, if you buy a stock at an all-time high, everyone's a winner. If you buy a stock that's 10% back or 20% back or 30% off its high, um, there's more of a chance that everyone's not a winner. In fact, some people are going to wait till it goes back to the all-time high to sell. So mm. y- you get the idea, but I, I, w- I would be wrong in playing along with you and saying that a 10% correction in Aeropostal and Freeport Macaron, very different companies. One's a retailer tied towards teens, right. uh, not towards teens, but women. Um, and one's you know a, a play on commodities, which uh, a lot of people think commodities should cool off for about a year, mm-hmm. as the economies of the world really aren't you know ramping up that fast. So whereas retailer, uh, you know the best performer this year in, in a year of a recession, it's been retail stocks, and it's almost counterintuitive. Um, whereas some people would now expect retail to basically people be ringing the cash register because it's had such a good year even though sales have been on the weaker side. So I don't know. So not a lot of generalizations. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. It's. Uh, I like where you're going, though. Okay. Um, I like the concept, what you're putting in there, Julian. Thanks for the call. Thank you. So absolutely. 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. It, it's a damned conundrum. <laughs> it really is. You, you look at Wall Street and you, you go, okay, the market's down 4 to 6%, and yet the stock's down 10 to 20%. Yeah, it's 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 already overcorrected somewhat. But here's the problem. Let's say like Freeport MacMorans in the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 is only down 4 to 6%. There could be continued pressure on Freeport MacMoran as the S&P 500 continues to correct. Even though they've already pulled off, it's tied towards another correction on commodities, not just the S&P 500. So I'd be cautious. Let's get a phone call. Let's get to Brad and Hayward. Hey, Rob. How you doing? Good. Uh, my question to you is, uh, what are the advantages of being able to claim full-time trader status, and what exactly is the IRS looking for as far as prerequisites? Um, I don't know. So, are you a full-time trader? No, 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 I'm not. I'm, uh, you know, uh, definitely do a part-time, but, um, you know, I didn't know, do I, do they look at, you know, percentage profit gain, or are they looking at, you know, do I need to make at least you know, 100000 in profit per year, or do I need to make a certain amount of trades, or, you know, um, you know how I don't really know what the IRS um, is looking for. I was just... Yeah, Because I've heard that, you know, being able to claim that status, you can write off, you know, your computer, and you can write off office supplies, and, and I've heard that there's a lot of, you know, tax advantages, um, but I don't... That's kind of really all I know. Right, and... I, I pulled up from the IRS while we were talking some of the, the stipulations. Uh, the trading is substantial. So some of these are they're, they're kind of tough to figure out. It means the trader has to buy and sell securities frequently to catch the daily movements in the market. The term frequent is not defined, but it's assumed that a trader would be trading with a number of transactions each day. Uh, the trader spends a large amount of time in trading activities, is not a casual investor. The trader manages his own transactions. Uh, another stipulation is profits are geared towards the short term rather than the long term. The holding period for securities is critical. Uh, if the courts look at it, does the person have another full-time job? If so, does it have any relationship with trading activities? Uh, if the person has a full-time job, it would be more difficult to qualify as a trader. 
even though a trader may have many transactions, they may 500 or more, they may still have to be an investor if the holding period is a matter of months rather than days or weeks. So it looks like days and weeks is important. It looks like staying in the short term is important. It looks like not having another full-time job is important. Um, what is the person doing to learn strategies? Are you going to seminars, books, materials? And do you spend a lot of time trading? Preferably, you do not have a regular full-time job. So bottom line, your your goal is to profit from short-term market swings rather than long-term gains or dividend income. Um, that's what I'm pulling up from the IRS, and it's it's not clear-cut, is it? No, no, it definitely doesn't sound clear-cut, yeah. So you're a professional trader. Tell me a little bit about that, Brad. Oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not a professional trader. Do you want to be? Um, yeah, possibly in the future, yeah. So what do you do now for a living? Uh, right now I'm... Uh, um, I work at uh, Kaiser, so I um, work in the hospital. But, um, you know, I trade part-time, so um, I actually called my brokers just to see how many trades I do. So I, um, I've done about 300 trades a year, so I don't think that that's, you know, enough. Um, I definitely don't trade every day. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that it's, it's to be a day trader to, you know, turn a profit every day where you're, you know, you're cashed out every single day. Um, Why do you want to be a day trader? Uh, I don't necessarily want to be a day trader. I just want to make money. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to note, Brad. That's, you know, I'm pretty deep in this stuff, right? Yeah. I don't want to do it on a day-by-day basis. It's tough. The people who are good traders, and back when I worked in New York and back when I worked in Washington, D.C., the people who are good traders, they work in Chicago and they work in New York. They don't work in their home. It's just, yeah. it's not as easy as it looks, and it's it's a humbling, humiliating experience. I've lost millions of dollars before 7 in the morning, and that just sucks. Um, so you're really going to have to be well-funded. It's like playing single-deck blackjack. You're going to have to be well-funded if you want the odds to work out for you. Uh, you're going to have to ride out some, some negative streaks. And, Brad, I would get into it very, very, very slowly, and thanks for the call. 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. It's 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. Anything financial that you want to bring on, bring on. Coming up next, I'm going to be interviewing Kit Yarrow. Uh, author of Gin Buy, Gin Buy, How Tweens, Teens, 20-somethings are revolutionizing retail. We'll talk about some of the particular stores. We'll talk about the spinning habits. We'll talk about the discretion angle on it. Um, it should be a good conversation. I'm going to spend 20, 30 minutes on that. It's the Rob Black Show, 9, 10 a.m., more stimulating talk. The Rob Black Show. Kit Yarrow, author of a book called Gin Buy, How Tweens, Teens, 20-somethings are revolutionizing retail. And revolutionizing retail and talking about tweens, obviously you start thinking about back when you were a teenager and going to the mall and what it meant. And it doesn't mean the same thing today is ultimately the bottom line of what I'm hearing when I talk to Kit Yarrow. Kit? Hey, how you doing? Doing well. Um, Mouth on microphone or mouth close to microphone. Um, Why write the book Gin Buy? Well, I'm a consumer psychologist and a professor over here at Golden Gate University, and I've been really interested in just studying why people buy what they buy, the psychology of shopping. And there's no generation really more important to the retail world than Gen Y. Those are people between 10 and 30. Now, they're reduce their spending less than other generations. But if you look into the future, by 2015, they'll have more 
more income and more and more spending power than any generation. So it seems to me like this is the generation really that anybody interested in business is going to want to study. And I started this by talking a little bit about myself. I'm Generation X, mm-hmm. and I remember going to the mall and uh, you know throwing down twelve bucks on an album. Mm-hmm. Music stores were very very big to me. Tower yeah. Records very very big. But Tower Records aren't there anymore. Yeah. Shopping has changed dramatically. It's, sometimes it's online. Sometimes it's iTunes now. Yeah. Um, what is the mall experience like for 10 to 30-year-olds these days? Well, first of all, just addressing the music aspect of teen culture, it's still every bit as relevant as when you were a teenager. Okay. So um, even though people aren't going and hanging out in music stores um, looking at albums, except for you know my age, we still go to Tower. Um, <laughs> the you know the kids are are still interacting with and, and interested in music in exactly the same way. It's just that they'll hang out at the Apple Store together, or um, they'll IM each other while they're considering music on the computer at home, or um, they'll be attracted to retailers like Hot Topic, who have kind of a, a cultural format of music that expands into other things like accessories. But still, you know, the badge of, of the badge of any generation is probably always going to have something to do with, with music at that age. Now, Hot Topic, that's um, a good one to bring up. It's one of those publicly traded companies that I've been following for years and years, and I never really got it. Yeah. Um, it's all, it's, it's not just about the music. It's mm-hmm. like you said, it's the accessories, it's the yeah. t-shirts, it's the concert tickets. It's, um, uh, you said the word hang out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, shopping used to be a destination. And as a man, I, I get in and I get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it, it, retailers are now catering to teens and making it kind of like a, a, a place where you can have a cup of coffee, a place where you can sit down, a place where your music can be heard while you're shopping, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Well, this generation has really, in fact, grown up in malls. A lot of parents, uh, used playgrounds in malls. Kids socialized in malls. It became kind of like at least a physically safe place for kids to go after school. In fact, if you go to any mall after school, you're going to find that it's actually sort of a playground for for teenagers. So a lot of the kids that we gen- we interviewed for Gen Buy, uh, we found that they had their first kiss in the mall, or they are held hands for the first time in malls, or they you know they they started dating somebody that they met in the mall. So. Because it's like today's playground for kids, um, of course, it's going to be also a little bit more fully accommodating in in other areas like uh, music and culture and, you know, sports and and everything you find at the mall today. And and Hot Topic, uh, I think people didn't pay too much attention to them until the recession because um, it was kind of like a double whabby. One, they had the ultimate teen combination and then, you know, of being culturally relevant and then twilight they they tied in with twilight which was a phenomenon so everybody seemed to be noticing in them and their stocks were doing great their sales were doing great they they were like the retailer to maintain um during the recession and so um all of a sudden people started wondering what's up with gen y and their power in the economy now hot topic one of the things that i've noticed about their stores and again i was an investor in the company in the mid 90s late Smart. 90s i'm no longer an investor in the company um i don't get kids anymore i i need people mm-hmm. like you to help me figure out where people are spending one thing that i liked about hot topic was their stores were like clubs yeah exactly industrial clubs they were mm-hmm. i mean they really got the concept right and that's expensive it's a square footage issue that's really crazy expensive, but they knew how to bring people in to spend money. Right. Well, the format really is just that they have credibility because their connection with music. But then if you go into one, the lighting, the layout of the store, the activities that they have going on, the promotions, the sponsorships, 
you know, their tie-ins with uh, bands and celebrities and anything culturally relevant, which is expensive, of course. It it just it makes them the place to go. It is, in fact, as you put it, kind of like the club. Right. And yeah. again, that's important. It's really important. So, you can't just sell merchandise today. You have to get involved with Gen Y. That's probably number one is you can't just say to them, um, hey, this would be cool. You should buy it. That has no meaning to this generation. What you have to do is start by forming a relationship with them. And social media oper- offers a great opportunity to do that. You have to be part of their world and, and understand what works for them. And then it's almost like with this generation, they have so much confidence. What they expect from you is that you anticipate their needs, develop them, and then they're going to tell you more specifically what they want. And they'll tell each other what you should buy. They prefer that to being kind of directly um, attacked by marketers. Which is interesting. Because social media is not Mm -hmm. something that I've glommed onto as a sales tactic. And yet, in your side, your book on page four, you you do a little true false quiz. Mm-hmm. Uh, four out of five top activities involve technology for tw- tw- people age ten to thirty. Yep. Average teen expects to spend over three hundred dollars on consumer electronics in the next six months. So yep. they're going to be tied to the electronics, and you're telling me the electronics is going to be tied towards sales and retail. Oh, absolutely. It's I mean, Gen Y's uh, influence, not only in what they're going to buy, and of course, they're tremendously interested in technology. You know, that's kind of like their second brain and third hand. It's so integrated into who they are. Um, but they also it greatly influence other generations. So they have a, a lot of influence over their parents and um, culture in general. You know, when when you were a teen, when I was a teen, you know, teenagers were not... Um, you know, and, and we're talking about people in their 20s as well. So so they were sort of craving to be a little bit older. Now older people are kind of craving to be a little bit younger. But the influence of young people today is really unprecedented in society and in their families. We're speaking with Kit Yarrow, author of Gen Buy, How Tweens, Teens, 20-somethings are revolutionized in retail. Um, inside the book, again, you, you open up this can of worms that say, you know, the television's sort of dead because... <laughs> Teens are using uh, cell phones. They're using computers. More kids watched Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live on a computer than they watched on television. Right. It's a crazy phenomenon. Well, I wouldn't say television is entirely dead. It's more like traditional TV advertising is losing some of its luster. It still works. But a lot of the teen shows, it's just they're so fragmented now. You know, there aren't it wasn't like, you know, when baby boomers were kids where there's a few TV shows that everybody's watching. There's so many, Um, you know, it's really hard to get um, big scale. But rather than to just um, deliver a message through advertising, you want to get product placement within shows. You want to, you know, sponsor the celebrities from these shows in your store. You want to, um, you know, come up with three-way relationships where stars from these shows are um, tweeting about your products or sponsors of your products. You know, it should be more integrated. That's really what works is if it feels like the, 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 the brand and the entertainment vehicle and the Gen Yer are all part of the same group. It's much more effective than just saying to a Gen Yer, hey, this is a cool product. You should buy it. It's just not working today. It's interesting to note that when I was a teenager, eh, maybe not a teenager. Yeah, when I was a teenager, Beverly Hills 90210 was one of the very first TV shows that said, you know, we don't really care about ratings. We care that people, young girls and young boys, 18 to 25 are watching our show and all their advertisers became pimple companies mm-hmm. and companies tied towards what young kids buy. It was, it, it, we started kind of modernizing 
are advertising towards teenagers with that one particular show. And since then, it's gotten uh, even a little bit more, like you said, integrated. When you say product integration in TV shows, um, how obvious is it to someone like me pushing 40? <laughs> well, it depends. I, You know, product placements have just gone through the roof. I mean, really through the roof, like hundreds of times um, more product placements today than there were 15 or 20 years ago. But honestly, a lot of that's fueled by reality TV. So a good percentage of those are in reality programs. They're sort of not so invisibly sponsored by some of the products that are used in those reality shows. And Gen Wires find that acceptable because although it's more integrated, so it looks natural, it's not obviously fake, like, um, you know, a long shot of a of a soda can in right. a movie where the soda is irrelevant. They, they would probably notice that and find that offensive. But product placement, if it's you know, if it's sort of honestly product placement and part of the storyline, they're they're sort of okay with that. And and they actually know that a lot of the more teen and early twenty something shows um have products placed in them. And, you know, interestingly enough for somebody in your generation that might be a little bit offensive to them. What they say is, well, good, we'll give us product information about where we can buy it too, and then it'll be really honest and open. You know, the things that some of these characters wear on those shows sell out instantly. And so, you know, especially fashions and especially with girls, um, it's effective. And um, I I think there's kind of no reason actually to hide it. It's interesting. uh, Again, movies like Clueless uh, that feature blonde, skinny girls. They make relationships with stores like Bibi, Mm -hmm. uh, who make clothes in size one and zero or zero and none. Uh, And like you said, it, it, it actually works, huh? Yeah, it definitely actually works. Okay. Yeah, it does. Let's take a little bit of a break here, but when we come back, I'm going to be speaking for another 15 minutes with author of Generation By, Golden Gate University professor, Kit Yarrow. We're going to talk about the successful marketers. We're going to talk about why Y is so different than X. Um, it's tough sometimes to put your head around this, but the money is real and the money is big. There's investments here. There's all sorts of angles to be had with it. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. It's Rob Black Show, 9, 10 a.m. More stimulating talk. with author, professor, Kit Yarrow. She's written the book Gen Bai, Gen Bai, and it's got a long title after that, How Tweens, Teens, and 20-somethings Are Revolutionizing Retail. And revolutionizing retail, it uses the word revolution. Mm-hmm. It's, it's changed. It's not the uh, – it's slickly marketed. It's well put together. It's meant to manipulate. It's meant to get us to overspend. Well, you know, I think more what I was thinking with revolutionizing retail was that Gen Y, with their – you know, they they were named that because they're the first generation to grow up from day one with technology. And because of that seamless relationship with technology, they've pushed at a faster rate than I think retailers really wanted. And other generations of consumers, the integration of, of technology with the retail experience. So fundamentally, you know, a lot of what we expect online, which is ultimately good for for all consumers, the t- price transparency, the options, the greater level of competition among retailers. I mean, I think those sorts of things always benefit consumers in general. They give us m- so much more power. And I think Gen Y, um, they didn't invent that, but they've moved things along so quickly because um, they do have so much spending power and they have so much influence other over other consumers. And if the retailers that don't get on and play are, are losing out. 
Now, inside your book, there's a couple quotes that really struck me. And for instance, Blair from Loyola said, my favorite memory about shopping for college was when I was shopping with my mom for things for my room. I got a blender. She was the only one who wanted to hear about the smoothies I made, uh, but enjoy the margaritas. <laughs> Paige said, I love shopping for clothing for my room. Uh-huh. My mom and I argued. I don't love shopping. I hate <laughs> shopping. It, it drives me insane. Yeah. I don't like it. I'm Generation X. Generation Y, they... they it's a sport they to do. them. It's yeah. a sport. Well, you're also a guy. So I would say okay. Generation Y guys were less likely than the girls to say they love shopping, but way more likely than you to say that they love shopping. So they were they were not as against, they were much more into it, but partly because stores have changed to accommodate boys more and men more. And partially because, again, they, they you know, they grew up in malls. They dated in malls. You know, they were with their parents in malls. So they're really, really comfortable in malls. But it's interesting the ways that guys and women shop are still at heart fundamentally different. Guys like to get the job done. Right. You know, we use the kill mentality, get in there, get it done. They don't like as many choices and so on. And women look at it as a social opportunity and a bonding opportunity, much the same way, you know, caveman days, you know, women would get together in, in a collective area and trade things. And that's how they would examine and explore their world and trade information that would potentially keep them alive. So, but yeah, uh, you know, to answer your question, it, certainly this generation loves shopping in a way that others don't. It's really integrated into who they are in a way that it wasn't for you or your generation. I'm simple when I shop. Like, for instance, yeah. I, I typically Kill. go to Banana Republic. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the thing that I like about Banana Republic is they kind of service me. Uh-huh. They go over, bend over backwards like, hey, can I get that pair of jeans for you in a different color? Can I do this? I kind of like the they become my slave mentality. <laughs> is that, it, Or it's kind of sexy to have a woman like. Say that looks good on you. So there's some sexy and there's some slave boss <laughs> issues. Does Banana Republic know this about me? They probably do. So okay, you're killing That's me. Cute. You're making me feel bad. But it, <laughs> being honest, well, I'm certain that you're not alone in that. And um, you know, actually, uh, having uh, dressing rooms become co-ed, which Gap was one of the first companies to start that process, really did work out well, partially for that reason, and that there there were now more. Um, women paying attention to guys in the stores and and that interaction between guys and gals spurs a lot of sales because ultimately one of the great motivators to buy especially for people when they're young in their early 20s and and late teens is you know attraction to others so there we go okay i'm with you i'm with you now what companies are doing it well what companies are flopping for instance I haven't been in a JCPenney's since mm-hmm. I was eight years old. I will never go into JCPenney's. I haven't been in a Sears since I was eight years old. Um, and my, my mom probably bought me clothes from Sears and JCPenney's at one point in my is, is what I'm trying to get at. Why did I leave those behind? Did they just not mm-hmm. change with the times? And, and who's good at it? Who's bad at it? Yeah. So, well, just to, the JCPenney's Sears, oh, my gosh. Those are such old heritage companies. And uh, frankly, you know, they have the same mentality as a lot of old companies, which is, well, we've done it this way for this many years. It's always worked and blah, blah, blah. And we can rest on our, you know, and ultimately they they just failed miserably. And so both of those companies have really made great efforts, especially pennies, to turn it around. Um, I don't think we're seeing a lot of success yet, but I think we will. We're seeing some, you know, the trend is moving in the right direction. So I think those companies, especially pennies, will become more relevant. But the companies that have done it well have been um, like Kohl's, Walmart, Target, the discounters that have maintained a design edge. So they've brought in designers to, you know, bring um, 
quality to the masses, so to speak, at, at fresh points. They're doing well. And that's that's interesting note because um, yeah. Target is pretty well known. If you watch some of the designing shows on you know TLC and those issues, they'll always say, and he's you know Ivan Mizrati is going to design yeah. the Target line. Yeah. And I don't know who that is, but I know that he's cool and edgy. So I, exactly. I might go to Target to get close. I might. I not say yeah. that I do or don't, but uh, it does work on me on some well, levels, especially. You know, also H&M and Zara, especially the companies that make clothing that's uh, fashionable, but at a lower price point. And younger people don't expect to keep their clothes as an investment. When you buy something, you may want to have it for a few years because your style is established. But young people are still figuring out who they are. And so they want to be able to turn over their clothing. And they're much more interested in, you know, having a fresh design and the latest designer. And uh, H&M, that's yeah. kind of European. It's mm-hmm. it, the Yeah, whole... they both are. And Zara is from Spain. And the whole you're telling me that's that's a whole generational issue where yeah. uh, when I spend I'll spend three hundred dollars on a pair of jeans, but I'm going to mm-hmm. wear them for two years. Right. You know, right. to me, that's it's an investment. And I just don't want to go. I don't want to go in the jean store again, although they do make me feel <laughs> sexy and they do take good care of me at the, the jean company that I I go to diesel. And uh-huh. They just they've got some sexy young women working there. <laughs> so they also have some. Yeah, I'm not going to um, get myself in trouble and we don't want to do that. Um, generation Y covers age territory. Will the next generation beneath them, Generation Z, I believe. Yeah. What do you expect out of them? You know, it's interesting. Gen Y, there's a little resentment towards Gen Y. A lot of people think they're kind of entitled or, mm-hmm. you know, that there's uh, they lack manners and so on. These are the the sorts of questions that I get a lot from people that have read the book, which has a fairly positive flavor towards Gen Y, although, you know, being a psychologist and scientist and trying to be as objective as possible. But I think the this generation, if you take away all of that, has had a really tough time. You know, they they have had to learn how to integrate technology into their lives. Z, I think, is going to have it easier because all the mistakes that are going to be made on a, a generation that's been given a lot of self-esteem and a lot of power and all of that technology has to offer, I think those are going to be thought through. And Gen Z, I think, is going to have a little bit easier time. Um, and by easy time, I mean, you know, more psychologically, there'll be less, I think, uh, bumps in the road. What's a college class like yours all about? Because I, I may sign up for it because to me, <laughs> I need to learn more of this because I'm an investor. All right. Come on. We want you. Actually, we've got a good, uh, we've got Hank Pruden over at Golden Gate and he's a security technical. Okay. So now we're out of my bailiwick here. But anyway, we do use behavioral yeah. economics quite a bit over there at Golden Gate. My classes are mostly psychology classes. So I, I'm teaching, um, you know, psychology, family systems, therapy, um, psychopathology. So I'm, I'm actually a clinical psychologist. And, and I when I wanted to study Gen Y, I think um, through the lens of shopping, because shopping is a great way to compare generations. It's something constant for all time we've had to shop. So, it, you know, it's a good, good scientific measure. But come on over. We want you. That's again, I'm all about that. College <laughs> education. It's also another way of staying social and relevant. Um, the website, you can find out more at genbuy.net. Genbuy.net, there's a sampling of some of the facts in, inside this. I'm a facts and figures kind of guy. The author, Kit Yarrow, PhD, Golden Gate University professor. Kit Yarrow, um, 20 seconds. Anything else that I'm forgetting here? Oh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. No, <laughs> I think you I think you did great. Good. It's, Thank uh, you. The book is Gen Buy, How Tweens, Teens, and 20-somethings are revolutionizing retail kit. Yo, it's Y-A-R-R-O-W. I'm Rob Black. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.